Amen. Check this out. Ready, Bobby? He's ready. That's right. Well, it started off just like any other typical day, and, and the adults had just finished their lunches. The kids were coming in from recess, and, and all seemed just fine in these small Midwestern town people. But little did they know, John, in a matter of seconds, everything was about to go wrong. Shortly after 1 p.m., the wind began to blow, and it began to blow, listen, with such a force that the trees actually began to snap in half. And then all of a sudden, this twirling beast descended from the clouds, and it moved along the ground at 70 miles an hour, destroying every single thing in its path. First, it killed a farmer. Then it killed two more people. Then it injured another 75, but that was just the beginning. Then it killed and, and, and left 32 others injured. Then 11 more people died, and still another 34. And then it, it turned on to a town, and it totally annihilated it. But that was just one town. Soon it moved on to the next town where it killed 234 people. And then on to another town where it killed 69. And then another town killed 127 and still another killing 71. In fact, for the next three and a half hours, more people would die. More deaths would occur from this single one disaster than any of its kind in all of U.S. history. The year was 1925. The disaster was the Great Tri-State Tornado. Welcome to living in Kansas, amen, Robert? Yeah, we know that too well. I saw seven at one time. Blech. That'll motivate you more than coffee. That's right. <laughs> but how many guys would say, man, that great tri-state tornado thing, that was a horrible disaster, right? I think we could agree on that. And again, you guys know the theme with all due respect to those who lost their lives, as mentioned there in the great uh, tri-state tornado. What if I were to tell you I know a disaster that makes that tornado look like a trip to the park? Mm -hmm. In fact, what if I were to tell you this disaster didn't occur at just one place at one time and at one country at one time, but it's going on right now today and it's been leaving a trail of death and destruction for centuries. Folks, once again, we are talking about the satanic war on the Christian, okay? And once again, the facts are this. We Christians, we don't battle here and there once in a while. We go to war every single day, whether we feel it, see it, believe it or not, or even want to believe it or not. Every single day that we get out of bed, there is a demonic host whose sole purpose is out there to destroy you and to extinguish your effectiveness for Jesus Christ. Okay, we don't have to be afraid, but man, we need to take this serious because it's really going on, okay? And so that's what we're going to do in order to stop getting duped up and, and beat up all over the place, unnecessarily so, in this spiritual war against the Christians, we're going to continue in our study. Now, we've already seen, by way of recap, the first thing, speaking of battle language that's used in the scripture, we're in a war, okay? What's the first thing you need to do if you're going to win a war? Common sense. You got to know who your enemy is. We've already dealt with that. The second thing we saw, what your enemy is like. The third thing, the tactic of your enemy. The fourth thing, the destruction of your enemy. And the last four times, the fifth thing we saw was the temptation of your enemy. Believe it or not, every single day we get out, somebody is out there trying to tempt us to get us to sin in our walk with God. Not just mess our relationship, but mess our life up, mess our witness up. This is going on every single day, 24-7. And it will never stop until we get to, praise God, if I can only imagine, heaven. Can you imagine getting to heaven and just the sin thing being gone? Just sin? And not just sin itself, but never, ever, ever, ever being tempted with it again? And that's just the beginning. And it lasts forever, and you don't get kicked out, praise God. Okay, uh, the last two times we saw dealing with this issue, the second temptation he fires us is the attack of the tormented Christian. And what we've been seeing the last couple of times is the devil will actually trick you and I, eat Christian, even though it's all over the scripture, he'll tempt us to not know how the process of temptation works. Why? Because he's not dumb. Hello, he's the author of temptation. He knows if we don't take a time to figure out how does this whole temptation thing start, then guess what? 
We'll always be dealing with the leftovers, right? We'll live a tormented life on our own doing because we never figure out how does this thing start so I can stop it, not at the end after it's over. How do I stop it before it begins, right? That's his whole premise. Now, we saw James chapter 1 says it starts where? In the mind. Then we saw the first time was, well, how does he get it into our mind? And the first one was through the ears, okay? And then last time we saw the second way he gets us into our minds is through the eyes, right? Not just the ears, but the eyes. And we saw he does that through the eyes with the way people dress, by getting them to dress immodestly and indecently, even in the church, if you can believe that. And they become a visual source of temptation when we're supposed to be, hello, worshiping God. Okay, again, this is not a meat market, right? And then we saw he tricks us into keeping that visual temptation going even outside of church services, even when we get home, by keeping that sinful drama, the television, that sinful stuff going into the eyes. It just never stops. We never shut it off, and we wonder why our minds are so full of the temptation of sin. We don't shut it off at its source. We don't pay attention to what we allow into our ears. We don't pay attention to what we allow through our eyes. That's the process of temptation. But that's not all. The third temptation that he's going to fire at you and I is he's going to tempt us to become what I call a troubled Christian. A troubled Christian. Man, it just seems like just one, you get out of one mess and you're into the next one. And it's just, it's, it's, you don't have to seem to have these long stretches of victory in Christ. It's just one trouble after another trouble. And the sad thing is, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. God tells us what to do. So we don't have to live a constant troubled life as a Christian. But again, don't take my word for it. Let's listen to his. 1 Peter chapter 5 is our opening text. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read verses 5 through 11 here. 1 Peter chapter 5. And if you find 2 Peter, what do you do? Hang your left. That's right. If you find 3 Peter, what do you do? New Bible. That's right. Uh, that's not in the scripture, right? 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read verses 5 through 7, right? When we're dealing with the temptation, when the enemy's coming after us, do we need to freak out? Do we need to run? Do we need to hide? Do we need to sit there and call out these demons and do all this stuff and name them by... No, I don't think so. God's got a much better method, okay? And that's what he's going to share with us here. So we don't have to live those troubled lines. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 starts with this. What? Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with what? Humility towards one another. Why? Because God, what? opposes the proud. I believe that's a military term. It means literally in the Greek, a full battle array. When you're walking around in arrogance and pride, even as a Christian, God is coming at you at full battle array. <gasps> that's not good. <laughs> right? So here's the antidote to that. God opposes the proud. You don't want that to happen, but he what? He gives what? Grace to the who? The antidote of pride. Humble, right? Literally means to shave off the top of the mountain, to be humble. Isn't that cool? Okay. He gives grace to the humble. We need his grace, right, when we're battling with the enemy. So he says, then humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may what? Lift you up, man, in your due time, right? In fact, tell you what, don't be troubled. What's the word he uses? Cast all your troubles. Cast your anxiety upon him, God. Why? Because he cares for you, right? So that's all you got to do. At the same time, why do you need to do that? Why do you need to cast all your trouble, your anxieties on God? Why do you need to walk around being humble so that you can be in a constant state of receiving his grace, empowered by God? Because what? Guess what's out there at the same time? The devil. And that's what he says. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So what do you do? 
You need this secret technique. You need to attend this seminar. That's right. You need to figure out the 18 ways of why you can call out that demon of bubblegum and get... No, apparently that's my problem. I chew and swallow that. No, no, no. No, it's the demon of this. And this. Have you seen that? Everybody's got this, this crazy technique. You need to, I need to lay hands on you. What's God say? What do you do? Just resist him. You don't need all the goofy techniques. Just read the word. What's it say? Resist him. That's all, that's all you got to do. And stand firm in what? In the faith, what God says. Why? Because first of all, you know that your brothers throughout the world, they're undergoing the same kind of sufferings, right? And the God of all what? Grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you suffered a little while, because it's not fun being tempted, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. God will do that for you. And to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, lots going on in this text, but what I want to bring out is the Bible is talking about good news. If you and I as Christians are going to live these victorious lives in Jesus Christ, what's he say there? We not only need to walk humbly before the Lord, but again, at the same time that we focus on doing that, what's he say we need to do? We need to simultaneously keep a sharp eye out for what? The devil, spiritual warfare. Why? Because what did it say there? He says, if we don't, he is going to slaughter us. The word that's used there is devour. He didn't say he'd come up and tickle you in the armpit. He didn't say he'd come up there and like, hey, what are you doing? What are you? The word he used is devour. In the Greek, it literally means, listen, to swallow us up, to destroy us whole. So when the enemy comes, what's his mandate according to God? He's not there to just mess things up. He wants to destroy you. He wants to swallow you up. And again, this is why I keep saying every single week, the Christian life is not a game. This is not a cakewalk. We are in a war. There really is a devil. There really are demons. And every single day you get out of bed, they're really out there to get you. Now, praise God, we don't have to be afraid. Amen? We've already dealt with this. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Just do what he says. Enjoy the victory. If and when the enemy shows up, have a great day. If you just do what he says to do, that's all you got to do. And guess what? When you do that, the, new, the text says, if you just remain humble before God, if you stay dependent upon God, that he is, in fact, going to empower you, he will you just stand there. Uh-uh, I'm not going to do it. I'm standing in the power of Christ that he's already given to me through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm standing firm in God's word that says, I don't need to be afraid. The devil's a loser, not me in Christ. I don't have to run. I don't have to freak out. I am no longer a slave to sin. You just stand firm in that victory. Scripture says God always provides a way out. Always. Every time we're tempted, the Scripture says God provides a way out. You just resist Him. You stand firm in God's truth. Have a great day. That's not what people are doing today, though. As we saw before, they act like this isn't even going on. When every single day it is going on. And then you wonder why you're living a troubled life as a Christian. Or again, in all seriousness, I, I joked about it just a little bit ago, but how many people out there, the 19 techniques to avoid demons, you know, call, you know and they got, everybody's got their technique, and you got to do this, and you got to go through these hoops and rolls. Hey, you can't do it on your own. How many phone calls do I get? How many emails? Pastor Tom, you deal with some of this stuff too. Hey, you guys need to come over, and there's demons in our house. And I say, hey, listen, I don't, we could do that. I'm not saying we can't. But did you know, if you're a born-again Christian, if you're a born-again Christian, then you have the same authority in Christ that I do as a pastor. Did you know you don't need to go to some spiritual elite in order to deal with spiritual warfare? Did you know that? That's the kind of Catholic version, right? You have to go to the priest. You're just hands are tied. Oh no, just suffer through it until the spiritually holy man shows up. That's not what the Bible says. Peter tells us you just stand firm. Christian, 
Whether you're a pastor, whether you're not a pastor, if you're a born-again Christian, that's the good news. I don't need some technique. I don't need some spiritual holy man to show up. And that's what the enemy wants you to think. Because the whole time, instead of just doing what Christ said and, and living a troubled, free life, just standing firm on God's word, you're sitting there acting like, I can't do nothing. And that's a lie. You can deal with it right then and there. Cast them out in the name of Jesus Christ, walk in his victory. But people aren't doing that today. And this is what I want to deal with. And this is what the enemy is doing, folks. I mean, it's right here. You don't need to shout and scream at a demon. You don't need some holy... What do you say? Christian, what do you do? When the enemy comes, what do you do? Stand firm in God's word. Resist him. Have a great day. That's it. It's right here. The enemy knows this. So what he does is he gets us as Christians to not do what God says to do, but since there is such thing as a spiritual warfare, we got to do something. He gets us to resort to things that we don't even know what we're doing. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that we Christians got our own language? Christianese, right? We say stuff all the time. We don't even know what we're saying. I mean, it sounds big and fancy, but what are you saying? I don't know. Well, why'd you do that? How come you prayed like that? I don't know. That's the way so-and-so told me how to do it. Well, then you go talk to so-and-so, what do you ask them? Well, well how can you do that? Well, I don't know. It's how so-and-so told me to do it, right? It's the same thing. It's, it's that classic story with the, uh, the meatloaf. There's this, uh, and this is a true story. There's this husband and a newly coupled. I won't look over there. This newly coupled. <laughs> and, and every time she would make meatloaf, which, by the way, we call cow cake in my house because you put it in a cake can. Yeah, you know, I'm getting, we got to get to the chili cook-off contest. But anyway. <laughs> so we make meatloaf, right? And so every time she would make this meatloaf and put it in, the, before she put it in the cake pan, right? And uh, they, she would lop both ends off. And then the, the new husband, he said, well, and this is a true story. He said, well, honey, why are you doing that? It's just, you're wasting good meat. It's just, what you see. And she said, well, I don't know. That's the way my mom always did it. So I kid you not, they actually went to the mom next time they saw her. Right? And they says, well, mom, how, how come every time you make meatloaf and uh, the, you, you chop the edges off before you put in the pan, just wasting the good meat? And she goes, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. I, my mom always did that when I was growing up. I'm not joking. They went to the grandma. <laughs> to the grandma and so they make the the she said well how come what's with the meatloaf how come you always chop the ends off grandma she goes oh, what she says the reason why i did that she says because the cake pan that we had was too short and in order to get it to fit i had to chop off the ends of the meatloaf <laughs> right? and that really happened right but my point is we do stuff even generationally even in churches we do well that's the way they do it you're supposed to stand up at this time you're supposed to pray this way you're supposed to and we don't even know what we're doing I'm telling you, the enemy is a master of this when it comes to spiritual warfare. Instead of just doing what God says, it's right here. Oh, no, you got to do something like this. In fact, in fact let, me, let me give you an example, another example of Christians, we do stuff, even pray stuff. We don't even know what we're doing, right? Well, watch this one. This is funny. I think the way we pray is, it, prayer, is a, prayer is a powerful thing, but I think it's, when you grow up in church, it's just you hear prayers all the time in different styles and stuff. And little quirks that people have when they pray. I don't know, little phrases that I don't understand to this day. But we use the phrases, but we, we, that's just what we heard growing up. We think that's just the right thing to say when we pray. You know, like hedge of protection. You ever hear that? I hear that a lot. Hedge of protection. Damn, we are praying a hedge of protection around you, buddy. That's right, a hedge. Mm -hmm. Around you and your whole family.
A hedge, huh? I don't mean to complain. Is that the best you can do? How about a thick cement wall? With some razor wire on top of that bad boy. Hedge protect, good set of clippers, get right through that thing. I'm sure the devil's got a set of those. I mean, you think a hedge is gonna scare the devil away? What is this greenery? I can't get through that. Move that bush. My greatest weakness is landscaping. How do they know? <laughs> now, how many guys have actually prayed that as a Christian? Even that exact phrase, a hedge of protection, right? All right. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with praying for God's protection. That's a good thing. You certainly want that. And you certainly want to pray that for other people. Okay. But under, oftentimes, we don't even understand the biblical basis for stuff. And so this is what the enemy knows, because guess what? When there's no, when you're standing firm on no substance, you're standing firm on no substance. But when you're standing on God's word and what God says, there's your authority, right? And that's what the enemy, he's trying to steer us away off on these things, okay? So I want to begin to break it down scripturally. We just saw 1 Peter chapter 5, okay? But let's take a look at some practical tools that God gives us from his word with his authority. It works every single time how to deal with temptation when it comes your way, okay? And, and the Bible tells us in great detail how, when, where, the whole nine yards. So we don't have to live a troubled life as a Christian, right? So let's break it down there. The first way he's going to attack us, the Bible says, is when you're the most vulnerable. The enemy is an opportunist, folks. He will always look for that little crack, that little chink in your armor, and mm, that's where he's going to weasel right on in. And the Bible says the first time when you're uh, uh, vulnerable, you better be on the lookout. He's coming is when you're all alone. You see, we see that example even with the temptation of Jesus, right? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by a giant figment of your imagination that was invented by preachers only to rip you off of your cash. Wrong translation. That's right, John, by a literal devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was what? Hungry. And so then the devil, he just picked something random. Well, let's, let's see if he wants a new car. No, he looked at the circumstances, What? He goes, he's an opportunist, right? What can I get him with this time? So obviously 40 days, 40, mm -hmm, you're hungry. So he came to him and said, if you were the son of God, tell these stones to become what? Bread. He's honing in on the need there, right? So Jesus answered though, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, so here we see again Jesus, but what I want to point out to you is not just he's being tempted, and he's being tempted by a literal devil, just like, folks, goes on today with demons and things of that nature, the spiritual warfare. But notice the proximity. What is the proximity of the devil beginning to tempt Jesus, right? He wasn't among a crowd of people, was he? This is not yet another occurrence of him hanging out with the disciples, when this was going on, when the devil came to Jesus to tempt him, the first thing out of the gates, where did he find him? He was all alone. Why? Because, folks, he's not dumb. The devil knows, folks, that when we are all alone, that's when we're probably more apt to give in to temptation. And I think we understand that. I don't think we have to explain that too much. When we're all alone, guess what? We don't have anybody there to keep us accountable, do we? We don't have anybody around to talk us out of it. We don't have anybody that said, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, fellow Christian, brother, sister in Christ, don't do that. You're going astray. Nobody's there. Except that's the illusion we saw before. Did you know God is omnipresent? 
We're never alone. But in these instances, that's what the devil wants. He wants to isolate us. He wants us to get us all by ourselves. He wants us to get us to, to do what the scripture says not to do, even this. And that is to forsake the assembly of the brethren. Right? We saw this before. It's the old uh, um, nature videos, right? When the lion's going after the herd or water buffalo, who does he go after? The one right smack dab in the middle. No, what's he do? Somehow, someway, one of them, invariably, unfortunately, old and young alike, they make the mistake. What do they do? They veer off, man. They veer off from the herd, and sure enough, what's the line go? Mmm, buffalo chops. Because <laughs> he knows, as soon as you get away from the herd, I'm gonna, I can run faster than you. You're going down, right? And if that's true in the nature world, folks, how many of you have learned this in the spiritual world? The devil is doing the same thing. Sooner or later, the longer you stray, Christian, you head out on your own, you become what you, he wants you to become, and that's called easy prey. And so the next thing you know, the sheep that, listen, breaks out of its pen. Oh, by the way, that pen was designed for what? For its protection. Not for its pain. I'm always missing out on fun. Really? Okay, so if getting eaten by a lion is your version of fun, okay, you got me. But why do we gather together as Christians? To encourage one another, to love one another, to, to, to keep each other accountable. It's not for pain, it's for our benefit, but that's what the enemy wants. He wants you to get all out alone in the wilderness and fall straight for his trap. And folks, this is a trend in the church today. I, I, I just, I'm just even more blunt nowadays. Well, Pastor Bella, you don't understand. See, I am so spiritual. And I know more than those goofy church people, <laughs> those hypocrites. Yes, that's why I don't need to go to church services. What I will do is I will sit here in my chair, and I will be an armchair Christian. And with my remote on the computer, I will tell every church that ever existed how they're doing it wrong. I'm so spiritual. Really? You just demonstrate how unspiritual you are because you have forsaken the assembly of the brethren. It has nothing to do with legalism, but I mean, that's basics. The word church, ecclesia, means a group of called out ones is plural. It's not a building, it's us. To be a part of the church means a part of a body of Christ. You can't do that alone. And you're messing up, as we saw before, the gifts, right? God gives you gifts just so you can go out there in nature and, and serve the squirrels. No, I'm sorry, that doesn't work that way. To serve other Christians. But how are they going to benefit from that gift if you never show up and vice versa? How can you benefit from their gift if you don't show up? Right? And by the way, there is no such thing as a perfect church. And Mr. Spiritual, by the way, if you find one, don't go there because you'll mess it up. And so will everybody else. <laughs> That's the, listen, we need each other. And this is a spiritual thing. It's the same thing that the, the enemy did with Jesus. He did, it wasn't in a city. It wasn't around a crowd of people. It was all alone. The enemy wants to get you Christian all alone. Because you're easy pickings at that point. So you better be careful. Right? Number two, he'll also get you not when you're only all alone, but you're also vulnerable right before a spiritual success because he wants to mess it up. And again, we see this again with the temptation of Jesus. Now let's move on to the next one, Matthew 4, now 5 through 7. Now, then the devil took it. Well, wait a second. So does that mean that the devil just, he tries once and you don't give in to it and he quits? No, he keeps going. Right? So here's number two. The devil takes him, Jesus, to the holy city, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he, God, will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to what? To the test. 
Okay. Now this time I want you to notice not just the proximity of the temptation of Jesus. I want you to notice the timing. The timing of this temptation uh, by the devil to Jesus. Okay. You put it back in its context. What's going on? This occurred not when Jesus was a baby. Right? This happened when Jesus was what? He wasn't a small boy. He wasn't a young teenager. It was right before what? It was right before Jesus' greatest time of spiritual success. Right before, in the context, when he would announce he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Right before he would demonstrate that truth by raising the dead, by healing the sick. Right before he would go to the cross, praise God for the forgiveness of our sins, right? So why did the devil tempt him right now? Because he knew if he could somehow get, which is impossible, but he knew, that's how evil he is, that if he could get Jesus to sin, what would happen? The cross would have been absolutely worthless. He would have never risen from the grave. He would have demonstrated he had a sin nature, which is impossible, but that would have been the demonstration, which means, as Paul says, our faith is futile. We are stuck in our sins. In other words, this going to heaven, yeah, you won't imagine it because we're going straight to hell. The whole point of this wasn't the proximity. The second one is the timing. The devil knew that if he could have got Jesus to sin at this point, then listen, he would have not been a success. He would have been an absolute, complete, utter failure. And I'm telling you, folks, it's the same thing today. We're going to read this later, but God has an amazing plan for every single one of us as born-again Christians. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but why? To do the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. If you're a born-again Christian, God has saved you to do something splendid for him. Something fantastic. And the enemy knows that. So why do you think he's trying to get you? Because listen, he's trying to get you distracted. He's trying to get you discouraged. He's trying to get you ensnared in sin. Anything but doing what Christ has called you to do. Why? Because then your time here on earth, as short as it is, will be a complete... Oh, he can't take away your salvation. But what God had called you to do, that splendid good thing for him, by the power of his spirit, will have been completely, utterly wasted. Because you're distracted. You're off into this world, which is idolatry, that's sin. You're not living for Christ. You're just punching the time clock. You ain't got time for him. Or maybe you're just flat out entrenched in sin and you don't care. The enemy is trying to take this time that we could live for Jesus and ruin it. Don't notice just the proximity of the temptation. Notice the timing of it. He's trying to get us to have a ministry for Christ that turns out to be an utter, complete failure. Okay? The third time is right after a spiritual success, right? He gets you coming, he gets you going. And this one we see with Peter. I mean, you got to put these passages together because this is wild, right? Matthew 16, 22 through 23. Peter took him. Who's him? Jesus. <laughs> this is Peter, man. Peter took him, Jesus, aside and began to what? Rebuke him. Why? Because what did Jesus say? He's going to die, right? Oh, no. And so it's... It, Peter takes and rebukes, never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And what's Jesus say? He turned to Peter. He says, get behind me. Who? Satan. Whoa. He says, you're a stumbling block to me. Why? Because you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now, this is why. This, is, again, is a timing issue of a temptation. Okay? Not of Jesus, but this is with Peter. But if you look at the context, when is this passage occurring? When does Jesus make this statement to Peter? Listen, it's right after one of Peter's most, listen, spiritually successful moments. 
This was right before Peter got the right answer. Right? This was right after he declared Jesus to be the Son of God. Right? Jesus goes to the disciples, right? And he says, who do you say that I am? Right? And, and you know, all this stuff. Peter got the right answer. Have you ever been there in Sunday school? All right, guys, this is going to be a tough one, but somebody here I know is going to get this answer. What's the favorite brand of Moses' dog's ice cream? And you said Spumoni. <laughs> First of all, Moses, I don't know if they had a dog. Second of all, I seriously doubt they had ice cream, especially in the desert. Okay, and I don't think they invented Spumoni. But my point is this. Have you ever been there in Sunday school, and they ask you that question, and you actually get it right? And you're just trying to be so humble about it, but it doesn't work too well. And for the whole week, I got the answer. I figured out what hypostatic union was. Sanctification, I actually spelled it correctly. Peter's on top of cloud nine. He got the right answer. Nobody else got it. Oh, yeah. You know he was strutting, right? Yep. Hey, guys, got the right answer. Me. Might want to be, you know. And what do we see in 1 Peter? God resists the proud. And the one moment, right, he had this spiritual success. He got the right answer. He's on cloud nine. Peter's the man. He's on the top of the world. Boom! The same lips that declared Jesus to be the Son of God. Listen, Jesus said it. I didn't. Became the mouthpiece of Satan. Whoa. That's how fast it can happen, guys. Satan is an opportunity. Oh, he'll try to get you going and mess up. But if he can't get you messing up, right? You're, oh, yeah. Boom. One preacher learned this the hard way. There's this young preacher. And he was excited about his first time preaching in his home church, too, by the way. And, I mean, after three years in seminary, <clears throat> he was totally prepared. Knew it all. Right. Not like those church folks. And so when he was introduced to the congregation, he walked up boldly to the pulpit. His head's high, right? He's total self-confidence. He's ready to go. But when he got up to the pulpit, he started stumbling as he read the scripture. And, and then all of a sudden, he lost his train of thought. And then halfway through the message, he began to panic. And then he did the safest thing he could think of. He just quickly ended his message. He, he prayed, and he walked totally humiliated down from the pulpit. But listen, as he did, the el an elderly woman came up to him and said, Son, listen to this. She said, son, if you had gone up to the pulpit the way you came down, you might have come down the way you went up. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Folks, we have got to realize who we're dealing with here. Whether it's, it's, it's going up, so to speak, whether it's coming down, whether it's right before, whether it's right after a spiritually successful moment you better be on the lookout because the enemy's right there seeking to take you out just like that the preacher uh, just like peter you're finally in a position to be used of god i mean this is awesome praise god you're at least serving him i mean lives are starting to be changed souls are getting saved there's spiritual success everywhere and then all of a sudden you're the greatest thing since sliced bread you got all the answers <laughs> in fact, I don't know why people argue with you because you obviously know everything. You know what you're headed for? Boom. And sometimes that's your spanking. You think you're so high and mighty? Watch this. I'll let the enemy play with you a little bit. How high and mighty are you now, Christian? 
right? The enemy is always out there trying to mess things up, okay? And again, it's with pride. And the longer you persist and the more you become prideful, you are headed for a rude awakening. One minute you're on top of the world. The next minute your world is crashing down. Why? Because the devil knows when to attack you. Listen, when you're all alone, right before and right after spiritual success. Why? Because that's when we typically are the most vulnerable, okay? The second way that he's going to attack you is when you're least resistant, right? Oops, well, the dam just busted. Yeah, now it's coming in like a flood. Why? Because you're not resistant anymore. And there's two ways that he will do you. He will try to get you into that least resistant scenario. And the first one, I think, is pretty uh, commonplace, unfortunately, today, and that's when you are wiped out, how many of you guys have learned that, you know, it's probably not the best technique that right before Sunday services, it's, it's probably not a good thing to stay up till uh, three in the morning, right? Especially when you're in the church and you're being, it's not a good idea. How many of you guys would say that it's, you know, right before this service or right when you're supposed to be doing this thing for the Lord, it's probably not a good thing to go out there and, and hike for 900 miles. You need to be careful Understand the timing. Don't get yourself in a position to be wiped out. Now, we see this example with Jesus. This is his advice, right? And we see this in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, 30 through 32. The apostles returned with Jesus from their ministry tour. Good thing, right? And he told uh, told him all they had done and what they had taught, right? And then Jesus said, well, hey, let's keep on going. Let's do round two. Turn it around. No, he says, let's get away from the crowds for a while and what? You need to rest. There were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat, man. And so they left by boat for a quieter spot. Ministry is great, but you better not get wiped out. And this is what we see here when the disciples returned from this busy and hectic ministry tour. And that's great stuff. What did Jesus tell them to do? He didn't say hit the road again because that would be best. What did he say? Hey, guys, uh, let's get away for a little bit and get some rest. Why? Because Jesus knows firsthand that even though we're doing and what we're doing is indeed important and it is indeed God's will, okay, we still need to get some rest. Why? Because the devil's not dumb. He's an opportunist, right? He knows, listen, folks, that when we are physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally drained, even sick, have you noticed that? This is a classic time, boom, he's going to come after you. He is going to come after you. Why? Because that's when we are wiped out. That's when our resistance is down. We're just trying to hang on, man. And because I don't feel like battling temptation, I'm sick. I'm white. I don't want to. And you you just give in. All because you put yourself in a position to be wiped out. And boy, isn't that what's going on today? We, we, We make jokes about it, always being wiped out. I ain't got time for God. I ain't got time to serve God. And then when I show up for God, I'm not perky. I'm not alert. (laughs) Why? Because I'm not being smart with my time. We would call it the rat race. (laughs) We'll run the rat race. But do we understand how that leaves us open to temptation? Because we're wiped out. We can't even even bring up our arm to swing. Right? One guy puts it this way. He says, listen, when the family is not being distracted by financial demands and keeping up with the Joneses or trying to figure out what went wrong with their marriage or their kids, there's this ever-pervasive distraction of busyness. Today, Americans are so busy, they literally have, hard, uh, have time for their families or for God. Children are involved in Little League and soccer and band and clubs and extracurricular activities at school. So many other all-absorbing activities, there simply isn't time for family or for God. 
Listen to this. The typical American married couple spends about 11 and a half minutes a day in any kind of conversation, which includes such meaningful statements as, hey, pass the salt, or do you have the newspaper? That's it. We don't have time to relate because it takes most of our time working at jobs that most of us dislike just so we can have enough money to get all these things that nobody wants. But that's right, just in case there's a little bit of time left on the weekends, there's televised sports, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, and countless other distractions. Listen, what time is left for family, marriage, and the spiritual gets eaten up. And then the next week. And then the next week. And then the next week. And then your marriage starts to go. And then the next week. And then the next month. Six months later. Now the kids are going crazy. And then the next week, and then the next year, and the next year, man, five years just went by. Your household is an absolute complete mess. What happened, man? When we started out with Christ, things were great. You got seduced into this rat race thing, and you're just so caught up, you ain't got time. And all it is is a trail of excuses, and you wake up one day, and you go, God, where are you? How many times have we said this before? If it feels like God's a million miles away, guess who moved? You did. You you don't have time for him. The enemy seduced you to get so stinking busy, you ain't got time for God, let alone serving God. He got you into a wiped out state. He wants you to burn the candle at both ends and never stop. Don't take a rest. Don't get away because that's when you are least resistant and you are just so stinking tired that you can't even raise your fist to stand on the word of God. Be careful. Now, the second time, this is the other end of the spectrum, is when you're bored. Man, we seem to go in one of these two. No wonder we're having a problem with temptation. Here's the other end of the spectrum. Instead of being constantly busy on the go, running the rat race, no time to spare, we go to this uh, spectrum, and we got way too much time on our hands, right? And what's the classic definition of that? Boredom. This is boring, right? But folks, did you know the Bible actually warns of this state? That if you get too much time on your hands, it's actually not a good thing right? Because things begin to fall apart, right? And this is what we see here in Ecclesiastes, right? Here we see it is in uh, chapter 10, verse 18. If a man is what? Lazy. What's lazy? I got too much time on my hands, and I just want to keep living like this. Too much time. What's going to happen? The rafters sag. Things begin to fall apart. In fact, if his hands are idle, the house leaks. Ladies, you know this one. And I desperately don't want to start a marital argument, or excuse me, an intense moment of fellowship today amongst married couples. But um, when the husband has too much time on his hands, how's that honeydew jar? It's filled to the top, man, it's bubbling over, right? And you're staring at that thing, and then you stare at him. And you stare at that jar, and then you stare at him. And then you do the eye thing. And he still ain't getting it. And if there's anything that I've learned I, I think I read an article on it. <laughs> in married life, there's nothing more for a wife to drive her up a wall than to have a full honeydew jar and the man is sitting there doing nothing. See, you knew that word, ladies, right? Why? Because there's stuff to do. We got stuff to do, man. Come on, get busy. We got this, the rafters are gonna sag, right? Come on, the house is gonna leak. Don't know. The Bible says, listen, if you got way too much time on your hands, this is not a good thing. Not only with your wife, not just with the honeydew list 
okay? You have a tendency to start forsaking the things that need attention. Yes, your home, but listen, not just your home life. Guess what you also do? You forsake your spiritual life. And that's where the other danger comes in, okay? And the next thing you know, because you got way too much time on your hands, your mind starts to look for something to do. Have you noticed that? La, 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 la. Okay, I'm not looking at that honey-do list, and I'm not even thinking about reading the Bible, and I haven't read the Bible. I don't even know how long, but I don't care, because it's all my time. That's right. It's, I'm going to do what I want to do. That's right. It's all me, 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 right? And then I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to serve God. And, and next thing you know, that gets kind of boring. And what does your mind start to do? It looks for a way to be appeased. Hmm. Maybe I could do this. Maybe I could. And as soon as you get in that state, guess what starts to come in your head? Sin. Well, maybe you could do this. Maybe you could do that. I mean, combine this with you're all alone and you're bored. Not a good combo. Right? And the enemy starts coming in. Here it comes. Sin comes in like a flood. And you start to sag spiritually. One surefire way for a Christian to become wide open to temptation is to have a wide open calendar. See, we need to strike that balance. You can't get so busy that you're absolutely wiped out, but you can't get in that state where everybody is living the so-called American dream. Have you noticed that one? I haven't found it in the scripture yet, right? That somehow the whole goal of life is to retire at the, hopefully the, at least by 50, if you can get it to 40 or even 30 if you're really... Uh, rambunctious, right? And then what do you do? You amass a massive amount of cash just so you can sit around and do nothing. And how does that work out for people? Usually not very well. People who typically win the lottery so they can sit around and do nothing. How's the track record with their life after that? Other than getting new friends, including that friend who wants them to invest in that pickle farm. (laughs) What happens? You got way too much time on your hands, man. And you get into sin, and it begins to bring trouble, and it could destroy your life. The enemy is not dumb. He's an opportunist. He's not going to hit us typically at our strongest point. He's going to hit us at our weakest point, the path of least resistance. And that's going to be when you're wiped out or you got way too much time. Watch this. The Great Wall of China is not only the longest man-made structure ever made, but it was made specifically, listen, not as a tourist trap. Hey, 2,000 years later, after we build this, we're going to have a great economy because tourists will come and walk. No, that's not what it was for. It was specifically to keep out the enemy. Nearly 4,000 miles long. It's so huge, it's actually visible from space. But even this didn't still work. Why? The enemy got in anyway. In fact, they got in. They broke through, listen, three different times. Not by tearing down the wall. No, no, no. It's too big to be st- destroyed. Here's what they did. They found the path of least resistance, and you know all they did? They simply bribed a gatekeeper who led him right on in. Three times. Folks, this is what the enemy, he's an opportunist. I keep saying this. This is who we're dealing with here. Just like those invaders, he's not going to hit us at the strongest point. Yeah, oh, hey, they have zero temptation with this, so I'm just going to keep hammering with that. No, 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 no. Where's that vulnerable point, you know? Where's that path of least resistance? Where's that little chink in the armor? That's where he's going to go. And again, whether it's being wiped out or totally bored, this is when we typically are going to give in to sin. Right? Now, is that practical for you? Right? How do you avoid all this stuff? You stand firm in Christ and you look out for these times. This is dealing with sin. I don't need to live a troubled life as a Christian. Just do what God says to do. Pay attention to when he's going to come. And when he comes, don't put myself into a vulnerable state. 
Stand firm and have a great day. But what if that's us today? This is what I want to close with. What if that's us? What if we're suffering from an onslaught of temptation? What if we become entangled in sin? What if we actually become a troubled Christian? What do we do? Well, first of all, it's called repent, right? Which means to turn around, you're going in this direction. It's not 360 degrees, because guess what? You're still in the same direction. It's 180, you go the other direction. That's what the word Repent means a change of mind, metanoia, go that way. You were going this way, go this way. You need to repent. You need to ask for God's forgiveness. And then you simply just need to get back on track. And again, you need to remind yourselves, Christian, that God has saved us for something more important than living a life of sin. Let me quote that text as we get ready to close. Here's what he says, Ephesians 2, 8 and, uh, uh, through 10. Uh, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourself, it's what? It's a gift from God, not of works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmen created in Christ Jesus to sit around. No, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is why we are here. God saves each one of us to do something splendid, not to live a life that is entrenched in sin. And one of the great works that he's called us to do is wherever you are, Christian, we're all different. We all got different gifts. We all live in different neighborhoods. We all have different families. In the sphere of influence that he's given you, he wants each one of us to be proactive. Not always entrenched in sin, and that's all you're doing. You're not witnessing because you're so stuck in sin. You're not trying to reach somebody for Christ because you're still dealing with this. And you got this, and, and he wants you to experience the victory over sin so that you can get busy at the mission at hand. At all costs. Like the Waldensians. Watch what they did. This is cool. Following their persecution in the lower valleys, the Waldensians who moved up here into the higher valleys did not do so to live life as hermits. Number one, they fled persecution, but once they got here, they tried to establish as normal a life as possible. And normal for them was training missionaries and training their young people in how to study and how to teach the Bible. This here, the College of the Barbs, stands today as just one example of what would have been numerous schools that would have been spread all over the valleys where they would teach and train their young people to be missionaries throughout Europe. After studying here in the colleges in the valleys, the students would be sent out to many of the great universities around Europe. We know that some of the countries that they went to were England, Scotland, France, Spain, Germany, the Czech Republic, Poland, Lithuania, Bulgaria and Croatia. And as they went out as students, they would study whether to be a doctor, a nurse, whether it was to be a lawyer. They would study various subjects, but their main purpose of going there was to be an undercover missionary. They would take the Bible with them. They would also send some missionaries out who would just go out as workers. They may be traveling craftsmen or traveling artisans and tradesmen. And they would also take the Bible with them and they would move and travel through different parts of Europe. They couldn't have the Bible, it was illegal, and so they would take their coat and they would unstitch the seam of their coat and then just inside the two layers of the coat they would put a few pages of the Bible and they would travel with just a few pages of the Bible, not a whole copy. And when they found someone that they thought was maybe interested in the Gospel, they would take the Bible out of the stitches of their coat and share the truths of God's Word with them. You know, maybe you're working today in a doctor's office. 
Maybe you're working as a nurse in a hospital. Maybe you're a teacher in a school, or maybe you're a lawyer in some law firm. You are not there simply to collect a paycheck to pay the bills. You are there as a missionary. God has put you there for a specific purpose. There may be someone in your workplace that God knows only you can reach. As students as well, the first reason why they went to study was not to get the best degree, but it was to be a missionary in the great universities in Europe. You today may be a missionary in a great institution. You are not there just for academic excellence. You are there also to seek and find people that you can share the gospel with. In other words, to do the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do, just like the Waldensians. Man, how far we have jumped off that standard. What an, what an example. It, just, it blows me away. It wasn't just that the Waldensians, they refrained from a life of sin. What was it? They realized it's all about him. That's why we're still here. At all costs, they needed to share Jesus with as many people as they could wherever they were, in their generation, for their time, with what time was left, wherever they went, in school, workplace, unit. It's the same thing today. It's just you look at most churches today, and it's all self-centered. It's all about self. It's all about what do you got for me, preacher? What do you got for me, music leader? What do you got for me, church? What do you got for my kids? What do you got me, me? No. It's about Jesus. And it's about the high calling that we have in him to let people know at all costs about him. Listen, this is the crux and we're going to close. The Christian life is not just about avoiding sin. Did you know that? If that's all you think the Christian life is, is just a bunch of do's and don'ts, you're missing the boat. It's not just about avoiding sin. Listen, it's, yes, avoiding sin and anything else that distracts you from the great calling that we have in Christ. That's why you want to avoid sin. Our salvation's already complete. It's already done. Technically, positionally, the sins are already wiped out. But you avoid sin. You learn how to deal with the temptation because nothing can distract you from the mission at hand. For your generation, for your city, for your time. At your work. At your school. Oh yeah, it helps provide a paycheck. Oh yeah, we need to get an education. But that's not really what you're there for. You're there to look for opportunities to share Christ. To do the good works that he prepared for us to do. And nothing, including sin, is going to get in the way. That's what made the Waldensians so awesome. So how about we be modern-day Waldensians for our generation, affecting our culture for our time, and dealing with sin, and getting busy sharing the gospel. Amen? Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today that you go to heaven and not hell? Now, before you answer that, let me uh, share with you a couple things that the Bible says. The Bible says that God is holy and that we are not. And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death. We don't deserve to go to heaven when we die. We deserve to go down. We deserve to go to hell. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this problem that we have, that we're separated from God not only now, but we're going to be separated from Him for all eternity in a place called hell. We, we, we don't even want to admit that. So, once again, out of love, God gives us what's called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were God's 
x-ray, if you will, divine x-ray to, to get us to admit the problem that we have inside that's separating us from Him. Let, let, let's take a look at a few of those of God's divine x-ray. For instance, if you think that you're worthy on your own, you don't need a Savior, uh, you're going to get to heaven all by yourself, then let's take a look at God's test there, uh, the, the Ten Commandments. The ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. Uh, how many of you have ever told a lie before? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, if you didn't raise your hand, you just told one. But folks, we've all done that. That makes us a liar. The Ten Commandments, God's x-ray, showing us that we have sin that's separating us from Him. We're not holy and perfect like Him. The Fifth Commandment says this, You shall not steal. Don't ever once take anything without permission. How many of you have ever done that? Well, if we're not going to tell another lie, we, we should all admit that as well. Well, that makes us a thief now. The Bible says that God is so holy, uh, even His name is holy. And that's why the Ten Commandments says, You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And if we're honest again, folks, hey, a lot of us, how many of us have used the blessed name of Jesus Christ? The only name, the Bible says, under heaven that men might be saved. We've now turned it into a common cuss word, if you can believe that. The Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. The Bible also says, hey, show, you want to show God you're so perfect, you have no sin? Then don't ever once commit adultery. And you might say, well, I, I've never done that, really? Jesus lays the standard before us. God looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside. Jesus said, if you ever looked with lust in your eye at another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's His holy standard. One more. The Bible says, okay, you think you're so good? Uh, then don't ever once commit murder. You shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I, at least I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible again says that the sin of hatred, wishing someone was uh, dead, is akin to the sin of murder. It's just, if you will, you pull the trigger in your heart. So, so, so how are you doing? That's just five out of ten of God's divine x-ray, by the way, uh, showing us the problem. How are you doing? Not if, but when your time comes, we're all going to stand before God. You'll be forced to admit what He already knows. Hey, God, let me in. Let me in. I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm a, I'm a thief. I'm a, a blasphemer, an adulterer, and a murderer. And the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not headed to heaven in that state. You're headed to hell. But here's the good news. God said if we would just admit this, number one, then he could fix it. And it gets fixed only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, He says, I am the way, the life, and the truth, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because only Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. And Jesus died on the cross. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be set free. And since we weren't there, and since it's a gift and we can't earn it, we have to receive that wonderful gift by faith. And the Bible says God will pardon us for our crimes, our sins, against Him. And you could actually see this analogy working uh, in the natural, in the normal world. Uh, we see this actually uh, in the courtroom. For instance, if a person is guilty and, and everybody knows they're guilty, they've committed a horrible crime and, and, and the, the sentence has passed, the judge has knocked down the gavel and says, hey, uh, you are going to jail, you are going to the death penalty for that crime. And, and we know that people, that happens all the time and they go to jail, but believe it or not, did you know there's a way for that person, even though they're guilty, to actually be set free from that crime? It's called a pardon. And the one in authority, the governor, has the part out of mercy, out of goodness, certainly nothing that that person did in jail. They can't undo the crime. It's too late. But out of mercy, the governor could go down there and grant that person in jail a full pardon for their crimes and 
by receiving that pardon, the doors come open and they are set free and they're rescued from the death penalty. Folks, that's what God is doing every single day with us spiritually. He has allowed His Son, Jesus Christ, to take the death penalty in our place. He's pardoned us, but a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it. And it's actually been on historical record that there have been people on death row who a governor has gone down out of mercy and extended to them a full pardon, but they've rejected it. And by their own doing, they went to the death penalty. Folks, don't make that same mistake for all eternity. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done. All of it. Even the sins we don't even know about. He wants to pardon you and forgive you, but you must receive that by faith today. The Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you call upon His name, ask Him to forgive you of all your sins, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Please do that now. Please do that today, because tomorrow may be too late. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries. Again, thank you for joining us. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us. Our information and number and uh, things will uh, pop up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.